0: Welcome to All About Agatha, the podcast dedicated to reading and ranking every single mystery novel written by the Queen of Crime, Dame Agatha Christie. I'm Kemper Donovan.
1: I'm Katherine
0: And this is The Case of the Middle-Aged Wife, a Parker Pine Investigate story. This is the first short story within the collection. We already covered the second short story, The Case of the Discontented Soldier. So we are going back. We are covering number one here. Parker Pine is always a little bit of a different beast within the Christie canon. Not really a detective, has much more of a romantic bent than any of Christie's other detectives, with the possible exception of Mr. Quinn. I suppose we should get right into it. Catherine, tell us about the publication history.
1: Well, it was published on October 8th, 1932, in Woman's Pictorial, under a different name, The Woman Concerned, which, um, going to be honest with you, Kemper, would have been preferable to me. Had that remained the title?
0: (laughs) You're not such a fan of the title here, are you, Catherine, the case of the middle-aged wife?
1: Not such a fan of the story, possibly.
0: Is it that the story upset you, or that you actually didn't like the story or think the story was well done?
1: I feel this way about the Parker Pine collection in general. I don't Mm -hmm. think that I come down negatively on them. I just also don't think they're that interesting. So I'm coming from a place of prejudice, and I apologize to all of our dear listeners and to you <laughs> if you really adored this story.
0: I certainly don't adore this story. I think a lot of what makes it upsetting, though, is is, is obviously purposeful.
1: Oh, it's, um, it's definitely purposeful. But, I mean, it, it does feel a little bit – they're all of a piece, all the Parker Pine stories and –
0: they are. I just, I appreciate the weird little corners of the Christie verse. I think that most casual Christie fans think that there's Poirot and Marple and that's it. But I, I love, Tell I even tumbins. love all of those Come standalone on. thrillers. And I also like the fact, I think that a lot of these represent her taking a break. And having a little bit of fun with sometimes oh, I mean, no, 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 to better I, effect than others, but I, I, I know I just, I, I just kind I, of enjoy it.
1: You know that's that's valid, and like I feel in that sort of Listerdale Mystery Golden Ball collection, I have nothing against one-offs or weird corners of the Christie canon. I just don't necessarily have a particular soft spot for the Parker Pine stories and this one in particular I think is not a bad entry in the Parker Pine canon as it were but it is a disturbing story in a bunch of ways Mm -hmm. to its great credit let me put it this way for a story that was written that long ago I do feel like there are points of resonance even now don't you think
0: oh absolutely well let's let's get into it And have more of this discussion on the other side of this story and talk about our victim. One could argue that the victim is uh, women everywhere. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So there's a plural victim here. It's half half the population. But the specific victim among that greater population is Mariah Packington, who is a middle-aged wife to George Packington. And Mariah is being emotionally cheated on. Her mm-hmm. husband is engaging in a dalliance with someone else, and she is not happy about it. So we really only have one suspect here because, as you can guess at this point, this is not a murder mystery. It's not even really a mystery. It's just a story about it's not a woman. A no, it's a story about a woman who's being cheated on by her husband and who ask Parker Pine to solve it, and then he does. So our perpetrator here is, of course, George Packington, the middle-aged husband Of the story, not that we ever focus all that much on his age. He's, of course, Mariah's husband. And let's talk a little bit about George and Mariah. Catherine.
1: So they are successful, they're upper middle class. They are, as the title would suggest, middle aged. And that has really put George in the corner. He's disillusioned, he feels old, and he takes his wife for granted. Mm -hmm. And so he has decided that he needs to buy extraordinarily expensive presents for his very young secretary because, you know, she just doesn't have these things. She doesn't have anybody to take care of her.
0: Did you catch what his young secretary's name is, Nancy, which would just happen to be the name of the woman who Agatha Christie's first husband left her for uh, about four years earlier? Hmm. What a coincidence. Jeez. (laughs) Nancy Neal, as we all remember, Agatha Christie checked into the Harrogate Hydro under Teresa Neal when she was in her fugue state, quote unquote. Interesting that she chose that name to give to the other woman in the story.
1: Just there are so many yikes with this one. But
0: I feel like if Archie were reading the book, it would kind of be like that scene in The Help.
1: You should read the book, Haley. It's quite scandalous. What book? What's it called again? Uh, The Help. H E L P.
0: And Bryce Dallas Howard is reading in bed, and she just slams the book shut and screams.
1: <laughs> okay, you know, in Love Actually, the Alan Rickman Emma Thompson plot.
0: Q Joni Mitchell, yes.
1: Moons and Jews and Ferris wheels. The dizzy dancing way that you feel. Cue Joni Mitchell. That scene every single time where she picks up the package and she thinks it's going to be the necklace that she saw him buy. And instead... It's a CD. Joni Mitchell, wow. To continue your emotional education. Yes. (laughs) Goodness. (laughs) That's great. My brilliant wife. Ah. Yes. And then she yep. just goes and like cries in a room. As every fairy tale comes through. I've looked at the love that way. Mm-hmm. All I could think of when I read this entire story was that scene in love, actually, which says something probably sad about me, but...
0: No, it's a really heartbreaking storyline. By the end of the movie, they're still together, but you can tell that they're still kind of broken. Maybe it'll work out, but it'll never be the same.
1: Oh, it will never be the same. And so... Whatever the resolution of this story, I mean, that was my feeling going into it and it was my feeling going out of it. So Mm -hmm. Mrs. Packington has, I guess, a little more faith that something can be done. So she approaches Parker Pine.
0: Right, because Parker Pine, of course, has his newspaper advertisement, Are You Happy? If not, consult Mr. Parker Pine, 17 Richmond Street. And I will just note, because it was curious in that we've now read the first and second story within this collection, and obviously they were published on their own as short stories within magazines that when Parker Pine is describing what he does and he's talking about how he worked in statistics in government office for 35 years and now he's retired and mm-hmm. unhappiness can be classified under five main heads, et cetera, et cetera. We covered all of this in The Discontented Soldier. It is lifted word for word in both of these stories. And I was looking into it and this story was actually the first of the Parker Pine stories published in the UK. And then The Discontented Soldier was the first of the Parker Pine stories published in the U.S. And this language doesn't seem to be in any of the other stories. So I suppose mm-hmm. that Christie felt that she just needed to replicate that explanatory passage in both of these. And then it was just missed when it was collected as a short story collection right. because it should have been excised out of one of these. It's really awkward having just read them back to back like this as one does in a short story collection. It's really awkward that these two pa- Paragraphs, two full paragraphs are replicated. Just wanted to point that out.
1: No, it's an interesting point.
0: So, yeah, she's not happy. So she decides to go in and um, see if Parker Pine can do anything for her. And Parker Pine, of course, very much like in The Discontented Soldier, immediately picks up on the fact that she's not happy. He says it in a cheerful, matter-of-fact voice. Very few people are happy. You would really be surprised (laughs) if you knew how few people are happy. There is something a little ruthless about Parker Pine. He he does want to make people happy. Uh, he's,
1: he's, he's mercenary, I would say.
0: Yeah. There's this whole business throughout the collection that we'll get into, but he charges wildly different amounts for different mm-hmm. clients based on how much he knows they will pay, which I also really appreciate. He'll charge one person X amount and then another like 10 times that amount, and then another one, one one-fifth the original amount. And he's just doing it based on his own internal calculations as to, okay, how much money can I squeeze out of this person? Because he'd rather get even a small amount than have them refuse his services.
1: But even weirder, he has his internal calculation, which we find out at the very end of this story – He has an internal calculation about what their output is going to be. And so what are they going to have to actually expense? Because while the clients don't seem to know this... He's built in the expense structure for these quote-unquote adventures into the fees.
0: Right. The expense of hiring Ariadne Oliver and hiring uh-huh. the vampy lady from The Discontented Soldier, who we will see again, and we'll meet him in a moment, but Claude Luttrell, who is the male equivalent <laughs> in this story. Yeah, right. he's calculating, and even though his goal is to make people happy, there is this kind of mathematical cold efficiency to him that is just an interesting aspect of his character
1: so uh, when mrs packington hires him he basically tells her that what needs to happen is that george packington must be made to quote unquote sit up which you know what yeah (laughs) agree with you parker pine Totally agree. He really does
0: need to sit up. I will also, by the way, point out, this is the last time I will harp on the real world parallels. But one of the ways in which Mrs. Packington expresses her displeasure with her husband is by saying that he golfs too much. Mm -hmm. And that is literally what Archie Christie did. And who was he golfing with half of the time? It turned out. uh, yes, Miss Nancy Neal. So yeah, just interesting. She really, she really went for it. She was writing what she knew in this one.
1: Yeah, and you can feel it a little bit. I mean, I think that that's actually why I find this story to be stressful.
0: Mm-hmm. You can feel her despair and her frustration. She's talking about, we're finally older, and now we're at the point where we can do fun things, and he doesn't want to do them with me. No. It's really brutal. It's actually— It's It's,
1: it's, it, it's horrible.
0: Yeah. And again, you know, we will we'll talk about the adaptation more toward the end, but this is another Agatha Christie Hour adaptation. This is the other Parker Pine episode within that 10 episode series. And the episode softens the husband character a lot. He's much more brutal and just dismissive and cruel to his wife. And the affair is even more, I think, involved in an emotional way in the story than it is in the adaptation. And I think that's because. It makes the ending of a reconciliation a little difficult to believe. Tell me, if you were in my position, what would you do? The
1: position is that?
0: Imagine your husband bought a gold necklace
1: and, come Christmas, gave it to somebody else. God. I
0: mean, would you wait around
1: <laughs> to find no, out? No, no, be- no, 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 no! Happy Christmas. Would you wait around to find out if it's just a necklace or if it's... Sex and a necklace, or if worst of all,
0: it's a necklace and love. Would you say knowing life would always be a little bit worse? Or would you cut and
1: run? Oh, God. I am so in the wrong. A classic fool. Yes, but you've also made a fool out of me we have made the life I lead foolish too
0: Yes they have an outward Reconciliation but are they having a true Reconciliation? In the adaptation they are The original story is Emma Thompson and Alan Rickman in Love Actually The adaptation yes. is Forgive me for the reference Miranda and Steve in the Sex and the City
1: movie you stop. How can you stop old sun Shining One make- the world go right and sometime I'm the same. And Miranda never looked back.
0: Soon to be governor of New York, Cynthia Nixon. I know,
1: Cynthia Nixon.
0: <laughs> Not to get political here, but she is running for governor of New York. But
1: Steve and Magda gave interviews with Vulture saying how much they admired Cynthia Nixon as a person and how much they were supportive of her run for governor. And I was oh boy. so touched because it was like TV family.
0: But yeah, by the end of that movie, they are 100% reconciled in every way. That, that is at least what we're supposed to believe, and that's where the adaptation went. But I agree with you. That's not necessarily where we are in this story. So on that note, how does Parker Pine go about solving Mrs. Packington's problem?
1: He enlists the assistance of an employee of his, Claude Luttrell, who is about 30.
0: He's 29, He's, right?
1: It's not even 29. He's described as not quite 30. He's uh, incredibly handsome, he's debonair, and uh, let's call a spade a spade, he is a gigolo.
0: It's a well-chosen age because he can't be too young. He needs a little bit of age to even be a worthy object of this woman's affection, given that she is much Mm -hmm. older. But he's as young as he could possibly be and still get that job done, which then affects the jealousy of her husband. He's in that sweet spot. (laughs)
1: <laughs> Correct. So so basically what happens though is Mrs. Packington doesn't actually know about this thing with Claude. She goes to Parker Pine, she gives the payment amount that he requests.
0: Doesn't she leave and say, No, mm-hmm. I can't possibly pay that right. and then he's like, She'll be back and yes. she comes back.
1: Yeah, because Again, ruthless full yeah. well, but also because her husband is a jerk and she goes home <laughs> and her husband's just spending more and more money on this like young secretary. So she uh, goes back Nancy. I know Nancy. But so she gets like a um She's all that makeover. It's like a spa day. It's very princess movie. Right.
0: I think it's actually more, it's more Anne Hathaway in The Princess Diaries. Yeah, you're totally
1: right. Because she's
0: all that makeover <laughs> is code for not really a makeover. I mean, she's all that makeover means that you literally remove your glasses and untie your hair and then you're like, Beautiful. But Anne Hathaway needed some work in Princess Diaries. She needed some work.
1: Well, they they straightened her hair. I, as somebody with curly hair, you also have curly hair. I do. So as people with curly hair, I will tell you that I think it's vaguely insulting in Princess Diaries that her makeover is that they straighten her hair.
0: They could have literally just told her, don't brush your hair. (laughs) <laughs> like, cause her hair is really frizzy and it's obviously brushed out and they should have been like, go take a shower, go put some deep conditioning agents in there and wait a couple of days brush it. and never comb it again and you'll be fine. Yeah. Why this is not told to every curly haired person in high school, I couldn't tell you, but it certainly wasn't told to me.
1: Nor I. And I mean, I will tell <laughs> you in last week's episode, we talked briefly about my experience with the city of Bath in England and having to see it through crown hair. And <laughs> if I had known better.
0: <laughs> anyway, she gets a makeover.
1: Let's do a makeover. <gasps> no. <laughs> no. Oh, come on, let us. Cher's main thrill in life is a makeover, okay? It gives her a sense of control in a world full of chaos. Please.
0: She gets done up. She gets her hair done. She gets her makeup done. She gets a new outfit or several outfits, really. A new mm-hmm. wardrobe. I and guess she gets to go to the Ritz. And she gets to go to the Ritz and have lunch with Mr. Luttrell.
1: Well, first with Parker Pine, who introduces right, her. Right, that's true. She's introduced to Monsieur Luttrell. And he is, at least from her perspective, very smitten with her. Of course, he is a gigolo, So, but she she does not know that. Well,
0: Christy threads the needle pretty well because we get the sense that Mrs. Packington is not an idiot and she knows deep down what's going on here, I think, but she allows herself to be caught up in the romance and intrigue of spending time with a man who actually pays attention to her and is pretty to look at and good for her. You know? She
1: wines and dines her and takes her dancing. And, you know, she feels seen.
0: Yeah.
1: And I think that that's the heartbreaking thing about this story to me. It's that she can yeah. probably see quite clearly through this, but it doesn't matter because just by virtue of the fact that somebody is seeing her for the first time in how many years? How sad is that?
0: Right. And it's, yeah, it's not sexual at all. And it's very clear that Mr. Packington's affair doesn't seem to be sexual either. This is all about emotional investment and the time and care that a person needs to take when it comes to the other person in a relationship. And... The breakdown of that and the breakdown of the person who feels as if they're not seen anymore and needs that interaction. So yeah, it's it's totally heartbreaking. And Claude basically gets as far as he can go. Mm-hmm. And this is all orchestrated from the beginning. Parker Pine knows that there has to be a moment during which Claude Luttrell makes a break with Mrs. Packington, but in the in the right way. And there's this all-important event that happens first, which is that Claude takes her dancing, and they have a wonderful time, and they happen to run into
1: they, Mr. Packington They, they quote-unquote happen to. I mean, right. clearly this is orchestrated as part of the of package. Yes.
0: It would take two seconds for Parker Pine to find out the whereabouts of Mr. Packington and Nancy on any given night so they go to the same place they are both on the dance floor Mrs. Packington happens upon Mr. Packington and she really has the upper hand here because she's a good dancer she's having a good time with this man and Mr. Packington is a terrible dancer and he looks like an old buffoon because he is an old buffoon And he is flustered to see her there and to see her specifically with this young, handsome man. And then there's this scene afterward when Mrs. Packington comes home and there's a bit of a role reversal, right? Where Mr. Packington is the one waiting for her and he's angry about the fact that she's been out with this man. And he basically tells her, you don't want to be a silly old woman who's being wined and dined. By a gigolo. He essentially says, like, people are laughing at you. You need to stop. hmm <laughs> And the way that she reacts, it's the one beat in the story that I didn't completely buy. Because if someone said that to me, if I were in Mrs. Packington's position, and if my husband, my strange husband, said that to me, I would be pretty angry. I would probably at least have some words with him at that point. But because she's in such a good mood and she's just kind of floating on air over the whole evening, she...
1: Goes into a room and listens to Joni Mitchell and repeat. I've looked at love from both sides now From
0: give and take And still somehow
1: it's love's illusions That I recall I really don't know love I really don't know love at all
0: what weird to believe is, and here's, here's the moment right here. <laughs> Mr. Packington says, who's that chap you were with? I don't know him, do I? And she tells him, Claude Latrell. how did you come across him? Oh, someone introduced me, said Mrs. Packington vaguely. Rather a queer thing for you to go out dancing at your time of life. Mustn't make a fool of yourself, my dear. This is a point at which I would have told him to shove his <laughs> my dear somewhere else.
1: Flung an ashtray uh, th- ash across the room, not necessarily absolutely. Like, directed at his head. Yeah.
0: Uh, but here's what happens. Mrs. Packington smiled. She was feeling much too kindly to the universe in general to make the obvious reply. A change is always nice, she said amiably. You've got to be careful, you know. A lot of these lounge lizard fellows going about, middle-aged women sometimes make awful fools of themselves. I'm just warning you, my dear. I don't like to see you doing anything unsuitable. He goes low and she goes high over and over again. And we're to believe that it's not until the next morning, that his words really sink in. And she basically faces the music, and Christy writes, "'Mrs. Packington was courageous at heart. "'She sat down and faced facts, a gigolo. "'She had read all about gigolos in the papers, "'had read two of the follies of middle-aged women. "'Was Claude a gigolo? "'She supposed he was. "'But then gigolos were paid for, "'and Claude always paid for her. "'Yes, but it was Mr. Parker Pine who paid, not Claude. "'Or rather, it was really her own 200 guineas. "'Was she a middle-aged fool?' Did Claude Luttrell laugh at her behind her back? Her face flushed at the thought. (sighs) Oh, Mariah.
1: It's so bad. So
0: ultimately, here's what happens. As we mentioned, Parker Pine knows when to cut bait, Mm -hmm. (laughs) essentially. And right after this night, Mrs. Packington actually buys Claude a gold cigarette case. And he refuses it. And he says, how could you give this to me? And he acts as if he's insulted. And the next morning he calls her and says, I have to see you. Can I come to your house? when he comes over, he has a scene essentially in front of her where he says, what do you think I am? That is what I've come to ask you. We've been friends, haven't we? Yes, friends. But all the same, you think I'm well, a gigolo, a creature who lives on women, a lounge lizard. You do, don't you? And she says, no, no. And he says, you do think that. And then he says, well, it's true. That's what I've come to say. It's true. I had my orders to take you about, to amuse you, to make love to you, to make you forget your husband. That was my job. A despicable one, eh? And then she says, why are you telling me this? And he says, because I can't carry on with it. Basically I'm going to reform I'm going to make good And I'm going to start afresh And become the man that I want to be Now that I've been with you Essentially he pulls a Jack Nicholson from as good as he gets
1: You make me want to be a better man That's maybe the best compliment of my life. Or Jack Nicholson from Something's Gotta Give. I finally get what it's all about. I'm 63 years old. (laughs) And and I'm in love. For the first time in my life. That's what I came here to say.
0: Who knew Jack Nicholson would have such resonance with the story? And (laughs) he gives her a ring, a gold seal ring from his finger, which he says was his mother's. He wants her to have it. He also says that he is going to take out an advertisement in the agony column on this very day, the day that he has come to visit her every year. And she'll find a message there from him saying... I remember, and I'm making good.
1: Right. So this is, of course, a Parker Pine ploy. Parker Pine has directed this to happen so that she can have this residual amount of romance left.
0: And we all saw that coming as readers, yeah. right? We knew that Parker Pine was paying Claude Latrell to do everything, including the agony column and right. the gold ring and, and all the rest right, of it. Right. But there he, is a final, final twist. What is it, Catherine?
1: Well, it's that Claude Luttrell really feels that way. He is, like, unhappy with the situation.
0: Yeah. He feels really badly because he clearly at the very least liked and respected Mariah Packington.
1: Yep. So his speech to her is actually not disingenuous. He means most of it because he goes back and he tells Parker Pine that and Parker Pine kind of brushes it off.
0: Right. Parker Pine is speaking with Miss Lemon. Miss Lemon actually did not make an appearance within the Discontented Soldier story. She was in the adaptation, but Miss Lemon does make an appearance in this story. Always Mm. exciting to have a Miss Lemon sighting. And he tells her to make a note of the uh, agony column for the next 10 years. (laughs) he's doing his various sums of what his expenses are. They, they end up turning a profit of 92 pounds, two and four pence out of her original 200 guineas that she paid. And Claude says, look here, I don't like this. It's a rotten game. That was a decent woman, a good sort, telling her all those lies, filling her up with this sob stuff, dash it all. It makes me sick. And then Parker Pine, I appreciated this because it's another Christy quirk that we've talked about before. Parker Pine then dryly references some of Claude's past dalliances, or one in particular, which was his exploitation of Mrs. Hattie West, the Californian (laughs) Cucumber King's wife. And I love that this is yet another American with a ridiculous name. They're all named like Hattie and Eustacia. Also, the
1: the Cucumber King is pretty good.
0: Not often in a story that California is referenced. For two Christie fanatics who live in California, I I have to say we appreciated that. And uh, yeah, and Claude says, well, I'm beginning to feel different. It isn't nice, this game. I don't like it. I, here's the thing. I get the sense that Claude is railing against this because he actually does feel badly, but that he's not going to change. Oh, and I, I believe think he, we will actually no, I don't think
1: he's gonna change hear at all. from
0: Claude later on in this collection, <laughs> which is extra depressing. It's not like he's actually going to make good.
1: You'd have to be pretty naive to think that he would. But I mean, I do think I that know. he genuinely feels bad. Bad in this story. He
0: genuinely feels bad, but he's not going to do anything about it other than what he just did for two seconds. This goes
1: back a little bit to the point about why I think that I find these stories disconcerting. Everybody's terrible.
0: You mean in the Parker Pine Mm -hmm, series? I guess in The Discontented Soldier, the soldier and Miss Lonely Heart found love. Even though it was on false pretenses.
1: I mean, all on false pretenses. Well,
0: you know what she's doing? What she's doing here in both of these stories is no different from what is happening in, in A Midsummer Night's Dream. Where one of the, and I forget which because there's so many, you know, Hermia's in love with Demetrius. Who's in love, like whatever. They're, they're all over the place. But one of those characters at the end of Midsummer Night's Dream is still under the effect of a love potion.
1: Yeah, they're so, all drugged. That's like the thing But about- it's kind of
0: like, I think the rest of them kind of equal out and it's fine. But one of them is still not even technically who he is. But it just doesn't matter because they're all in love and it all mashes up and it's fine. I <laughs> It's kind of like, if I you just end so. up being in love, who cares how it happens? And that's funny. There is some dark humor to it. And I think she's tapping into the same thing here.
1: Well, it's I mean, if, if you think the Packingtons are still in love and that they're not unhappily married at the end of the story, must <laughs> be Made a fool out of me. We've made the life I lead foolish too.
0: I think Mariah Packington now has a source of contentment that she did not have at the beginning of the story and that is real to her. Even though it was made under false pretenses, she has a source of contentment and that is going to help her live more happily with her husband than she otherwise would have.
1: Small victories.
0: Here's the thing, and again, we'll, let's just talk a little bit about the adaptation. In the adaptation, the husband is properly chastised right, and is. changed. Look here, Mariah, about that girl. Yes, Dirk. I never meant to upset you, you know, about her. Nothing in it. I know. I was foolish. See as much of her as you like if it makes you happy. Mariah? Yes, George? Why, it isn't right for a, a wife
1: to urge a fellow to take a girl about. It isn't?
0: Why, well, no, it's it's not uh, decent. Not so much fun, you mean? Fun had nothing to do with it.
1: No, George. What you don't seem to realize is that it takes it out of a fellow, that sort of thing. What sort of thing, George?
0: Dancing, that sort of thing. I must say, dear, you are looking rather tired. Well, I could do with a holiday. We might go away together somewhere for a break, if you like. Don't worry about me. I'm quite happy. Damn it, woman. I'd like to take you somewhere. There is at least lip service paid to the idea that they are now going to be happy. You know,
1: I I can't believe I'm making another horrible reference, but it reminds me of the adaptation a little bit, except it's the inverse. In the movie adaptation of Bridget Jones's Diary, Bridget's mom goes and runs off with the TV salesman and leaves for Mm -hmm. Jim Broadbent. Right, and she kind of comes back to the house at the very end, and is very chastened by her sort of renegade adventure. And he's completely happy to take her back. I've always bought that in that movie. Like I got that in Mm -hmm. in the adaptation of this. They do a better job at that kind of. Well, this is a one-off. He was just maybe frustrated or something, and he feels bad enough that he's going to come back. That's not the case in the short story.
0: It's not the case in the short story, but all the enjoyment of taking this younger girl out has been destroyed. And Chrissy writes, all that feeling of being a gay dog, of being a strong man playing with fire, fizzled out and died an ignominious death. George Packington felt suddenly tired and a great deal poorer in pocket. The girl was a shrewd little piece. I love how it's like at her expense, like, oh, it's her fault. Mrs. Packington smiled at him from a distance. Poor old George. She was fond of him. He was such a pathetic old dear. There was no secret splendor in his life as there was in hers. So that's their happy-ish ending. But yes, agreed. It's not happy, but she's in a better place than she was at the start of the story. Parker Pine did help her.
1: He did. Listen, Parker Pine, I might have some problems with Parker Pine, but he does seem to be effective.
0: I wanted to give credit to the chemistry that I thought existed between the actor playing Claude and the actor playing Mariah Packington. I actually liked them together. Claude looked a little bit like a dishier Kevin Klein to me.
1: I don't know. Kevin Klein could be kind of dishy in his own way. He can be
0: dishy in his own way, but he was like a younger or at least younger version than I think the standard version that most people think of when they think of Kevin Klein. But I thought they did a good job. I thought they had fun with the makeover and it was done in a very grounded way. There was nothing camp be about this story at all in the adaptation. And I think the last thing that we need to talk about in that adaptation, since we didn't talk about her when we were doing the case of the discontented soldier, was Angela Angela Easterling, who played Miss Lemon in both of these episodes. As Pauline Moran stands till the end of time, I can't say that I felt she in any way replaced the character uh, for me as brought to life by Pauline Moran. But I thought she did a good job. I mean, this is a very hard, brisk Miss Lemon without any of the unspoken humor that Pauline Moran brought to the role. Right.
1: No, I I agree with you fully, but I mean, I never even thought about a different Miss Lemon. So just to see anybody else playing Miss Lemon is a real curiosity, I think.
0: I know it's funny that she did it first. I know. It was only two episodes, but she did it seven years earlier.
1: I also want to point out our friend Mark Aldridge posted this on Twitter, but it was an excerpt from some television guide in the late 80s or early 90s about how Pauline Moran went from a straight-haired lady in the morning to Miss Lemon in the afternoon. So it has her hairdresser, um, her stylist on Poirot, and her straight hair and having to put setting lotion in with, like, basically a crimping iron and do all of her hair. And then this is the shocking thing, so don't pass out when I tell you this. The um, spit curls. Yes, yes. They were not spit curled. They were pieces of hair that were preset that were then glued onto her face. <sighs>
0: They were fake?
1: They were fake.
0: Oh, as fake as the mustache on David Suchet's face. <laughs> Shocking, but much more effective.
1: <laughs> yeah, I mean, it still seemed much like- Much more artfully she, done. It still seemed like she had to sit for like an hour and a half in a hairstylist before production every single time they shot. So wow, she wasn't, she wasn't getting out of it easily.
0: That's really funny. Yeah, so Angela Easterling did a stand-up job, but it'll always be Pauline Moran's character.
1: She is our Miss Lemon.
0: She is our Miss Lemon.
1: I will add that I feel like I was negative about this at the beginning of this podcast, and I I still have real mixed feelings about the Parker Pine stories in general. But I think that really my misgivings about this actually are more about the content than they are about anything that Christy herself did in the story. I think that I just find it unsettling.
0: I think your reaction in a way speaks to the power of the story. It comes from a personal place for her. I hope she exercised some demons. Who knows? But I think it's quite well done. I'm not going to say that Parker Pine is a favorite of mine necessarily, but as I said in the, in the beginning of the episode, I do appreciate that it's this weird little pocket of the Christieverse, yeah. and that she's doing something entirely different. The mysteries are not are obviously not as robust as we get in the Poirot well, and I mean, they're, they're poor. and are short stories even. I mean, they're mysteries.
1: But they're not mysteries. supposed to be. No, I mean, exactly. they're barely it's mysteries. Not,
0: you could say, I mean, Tommy and Tuppence, and we'll actually be getting back to them shortly in a future episode but the tommy and tuppen short stories you could argue are a little more frustrating because they are mysteries and she's doing what she does in the poirot and marple short stories but in much more of a light way here she's just doing something entirely different so it's not even like a light gloss of that it's just a story of romantic intrigue
1: romantic is not the word that i would use Playing. Yeah,
0: no, it's true. It's true. A story of emotional intrigue. Not sure what to call it.
1: I know it's, it's hard that's to so find fascinating it's, about it. Yeah, I agree. I mean, that's the thing. It's, it's hard to find a definition. I mean, I guess what I find most interesting is how transactional they are. And Absolutely. that is, that is the most curious thing to me because, you know, we get Miss Marple and Poirot essentially working for free and mm-hmm. they have much higher stakes cases. And then this yeah. is just, it's, it's gritty in a particular way. And, you know, I think the more that we talk this through, the more that I do appreciate the effect of it.
0: Yeah. I, it's funny that you say that because I, at one point in this short story, I had written in the margins Miss Marple or Marple-esque, perhaps the adjective Marpelian. And <laughs> it was when Parker Pine was once again talking about statistics because in a way, that is what Miss Marple is talking about when she talks about how people fall into certain types. Parker Pine is just more mathematical given his background about the way that he he expresses it. But it's the same principle, this idea that you can divide people into categories and you can use past performances or evaluations to predict future behavior. And I almost feel like if Miss Marple had been a man and had been a man in business, she just may conduct her business in a way um, somewhat similar well, to Mr. Burger y- y-
1: You are walking into this trap, Kemper, because do you know what that would make her? What? Dark Marple. Because I think that that I think but I that, don't
0: think Parker Pine is dark. I don't, I mean, I don't think Parker Pine is evil.
1: I at don't, all. No, my beloved dark marble theory is not that <laughs> I'm placing a moral judgment on that. I'm not. I just think that there is a certain degree of cynicism and darkness. That is lurking underneath the surface. And I think for Parker Pine, he's mercenary. So I mean that's also not mm-hmm. that's not conveying a moral judgment either. It's just
0: I'll give you the cynicism. I just I don't think you said cynicism and darkness. I don't think the two necessarily go hand in hand, and I certainly don't think they do with Miss Marple. I think I mean, she
1: she's obviously cynical I'm and light. That, I'm saying <laughs> that tug-in-cheek. Cynical as, and
0: upstanding.
1: As you all know, love our dear Jane. <laughs>
0: Well, on that note, I think we are done with The Case of the Middle-Aged Wife. Join us next week for our next novel. We are very excited. Death on the Nile. Yay! Get ready for Christy Abroad. This is a big one, folks. I know. We have that to look forward to. And in the meantime, we would love to hear from you. As always, please email us at allaboutthedame at gmail.com or find us on Twitter at allaboutthedame. You can find Catherine at Brobcat. And you can find us on Facebook. Our Facebook page is All About Agatha. We're also on Instagram at allaboutagatha. And we would love it if you would rate and review us. It helps others find the podcast. We also love getting feedback. We will see you next time. Bye.
1: Bye.